0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and on this show, I interview world-class entrepreneurs, ambitious startup founders, creators, and builders on the internet who are boldly building the future in public. This podcast is my excuse to take you all on a curious journey to understand, learn, and hopefully be inspired by the worldviews, insights, and stories of these fabulous people changing the world. So far, I've gotten the rare privilege to sit down with incredible guests like Gary Vee, Alexis Ohanian, Kat Cole, Sahil Levinjia, and many more leaders. So check out the full podcast listing at buildingpublicpodcast.com. Now buckle up and get ready for our latest episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of the Building Public podcast. I am super, super, super excited for today's episode. I'm joined by a very close friend, someone I've been meaning to bring on this pod from like the get from a long time ago. And I think it's overdue. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Owen Willis. Hey, KP.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. First, long time, first time. I know, that's right? That's <laughs>
0: And so, for folks who may not know Owen, I mean, I'll have to say a couple of things about him that excited me about this podcast episode, but also generally, like, you know, about the things that he's working on. Owen and I, for those of you who follow, me closely know that we both worked on, on deck and Owen was in the OnDeck Health, built it from scratch, grew it to, I think, what is it, 500? How many founders did you have in your community? We ended up at, at just over 300. 300, but you evaluated thousands, right? For mm-hmm. both yep. the community, but also the ODX accelerator, you know? So he's got his hands deep in the pre-seed founder, you know, idea to MVP stage for MVP, I mean, for health tech. And I've just, you know, he's been a relentless operator. I love I said this many many times to him directly and I'm saying this on air now that I he's one of the people who has such great EQ and a wonderful leader and I cannot highlight this enough he's a wonderful leader I enjoyed working with him towards the end we got to work together in the same team and I saw his leadership and such a founder friendly team centric personality so it's an honor that I got to work with you there I'm not joking and I'm gassing you up but genuinely you know someone who I felt like really cared about people and founders or, you know, whoever you're serving, right? So the spirit of service tagline we talk about all the time. I think you're you're a walking example of that, Owen. So with that said, send me the Venmo payment.
1: (laughs) I got to say, man, this is, uh, I just need to come on the show every week for this first like two minutes, right? um, because I am now like ready to go. I'm hyped. (laughs) I I feel great. Um, Ready to walk through a wall,
0: yeah. Yeah, I exactly. Think, I, I think love it. it's it's very important for us to. I feel like we just do so many things. I know you're you're into you know conferences and you've done the Substack, you know, which people you should check it out. I'll link it in the show notes. We create a lot of content. We do a lot of community events, and you host a lot of events and you know firesides and whatnot. I feel like sometimes we forget to be at the receiving end of some of these things, and like, huh, okay, this is like a cool reflection on what I've been you know, what kind of impact I've been leaving. I want to start off with this super unconventional thing that you did that blew my mind when you shared with me. And I'm so jealous that you did it. But of course you did it, which is you, I mean, I want to know the rationale, but like you basically spent towards the end of the year a good chunk of your time and wrote what, 100 plus? handwritten notes and emails to people who impacted you in 2022? Number one, are you crazy? Number two, why did you do it?
1: Yeah, man. So I think one of the things, and, and this is a, definitely a lesson that I learned from my time at Osmosis. So a huge shout out to uh, Shiv Kagwani for teaching this lesson. I think one of the things that like we miss in the world is we don't really often see kind of what happens after you have a conversation with somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Like what is the impact... That their words had on you. What are the things that they inspired you to do? And in in many ways, you know, just the act of closing the loop is just a a, a really powerful reminder for folks. The things that they do, the time that they spend with people, has impact and has meaning. And so, yeah. what I would say, you know, for founders out there who are, are working with investors and advisors to get introductions, kind of all of these things, definitely spend some time every month and really work on a, on a practice of gratitude because you know. At the end of the day, it, it's something that is going to be paid forward to you at some point in your career as you as you become more successful. But also, it's it's a really great way just to say thank you and make sure that those people you know will continue stepping up to the plate for you in the future. So, at the end of the year, uh, you know, I went through this process uh, and it was part of actually a broader exercise of looking at every phone call I had, every meeting I had from the time that I left on deck all the way through the end of the year, and just understanding the impact that each one of those meetings had on me. And I came away with it with a couple of things. Number one was an understanding of where my time was being well spent and the things that I could be doing differently coming into the new year, right? How do I make sure that I'm showing up to the most important things, not just physically, but also mentally. Right. And then secondarily kind of, as I was going through, I had all of these really amazing moments of like, you know, oh man, like that call actually like really changed the way I thought about X, Y, or Z thing. I really need to reach out and tell that person that, like, that is something that that, that had an impact. So, you know, very manual thing. Yeah, good thing for the scale. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, kind of end of the year, you always have a little bit of extra time. But yeah, I, I sat down and, you know, wrote every single person an email. Next year will be handwritten KP. You've, you've, you've got me to, to step it up. But... For me it was a really impactful exercise, both in terms of being able to say thank you, but also just how many people have my back. And so that for somebody you know oftentimes as founders, you're building alone. It's this very lonely experience getting that moment of understanding all the people out there that were rooting for me and helping me along the way. I think that is the value of
0: it, at least, at least from my perspective. So the beauty with doing that exercise, and of course, sending it across to, I don't know how many people you send it to, is one, is something we always, you and I know, we align on this, is we, we keep advising founders to constantly share monthly updates, mm-hmm. even with investors who may not have invested in your previous round. You know, but like just keep them in the loop if they're opted into it. Right. And so Mm -hmm. there's this narrative continuation that happens when you choose to, you know, spend, I don't know, like 30 minutes to write an email and send it to some people. So this episode genuinely came to life because I got that email from you. (laughs) And I was making a list that day. I was making a list of people that I would love to have on my podcast or 2023. And I think this was end of 2022, December 26th or 7th or something. And I was like, oh my God, of course I got to get Owen on the show. I'm like, I'm like, how did I miss him? And of course, you know, so you stayed top of mind. And you're such a warm feeling to be the receiving end. And you do you like you specifically called out the three or four meetings we had or calls we had. And like, I'm like, wow, this guy actually cares. He was really empathetic, really thoughtful. You know, I am so jealous of the fact that you were able to pull that off across such a big network that you have. So let's walk through your career trajectory as a whole. And you know, for those of us in the audience who uh, may not know much about you've done before on deck can you give us a condensed summary of some key inflection points you know through your career
1: yeah absolutely so i actually i started my career in education i was a pre-k through seventh grade special education teacher in washington dc through teach for america and that was uh you know when I think about inflection points, getting that, the opportunity to do that, getting the invitation from TFA to join their the cohort that I was part of, that was a big inflection point for me. I graduated from college in 2009, and I was a finance major, econ and finance, and I thought I was going to be an investment banker. And in 2009, there were like negative investment banking jobs, right? Like one <laughs> of my friends got a job, right. and uh, I, very, very fortunately, I, I had this opportunity come along, and it's it, it totally changed the trajectory of my career. I think you know TFA is really good at, at creating education advocates and, and that's when i became i uh, got my master's in education from george mason uh, ended up going into ed tech and then consulting we're going to talk a little bit about it, those things more in detail later but as a consultant i was mostly working with the gates and the dell foundation doing data system design and implementation in the education space. And uh, I didn't realize that that was necessarily going to prepare me for working in health tech. But, you know, as it turned out, education data is... The only thing more screwed up than education data is healthcare data. Even that is like a little bit of a competition, right? I think that's a little debatable, which is worse. Um, (laughs) And so, so, like, I I learned a ton about, like, both data interoperability, but also, you know, we were spending months and months and months embedded with these clients. And you learn a lot about relationships. Relationship building about business development, and you learn a lot about kind of what happens through setting of expectations, and then like the actual follow through, right? And what happens when that is done well, and what happens when that is done poorly. So that was right. that was really really helpful for me. On the side, I was doing some sourcing and diligence for an edtech investor, and I ended up recommending finding a company called Osmosis, recommending investment in it, and then getting to meet the founder, Shiv. Kind of as part of that process. So was it still
0: in D.C., Washington, D.C., or was it in New York?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I was in D.C. I was looking to get into tech. You know, there were a few different paths to doing it. And, and you know, one of them was was venture. One of them was going to, going to uh, business school. And one of them was actually joining a startup. And, you know, fortunately for me, the startup is the one that hit. I joined the team. I was an early employee. Built us out to uh, more than 150 folks. And we were fully remote. Uh, this is wow. pre covid and I uh, learned a lot about the process of, of, of team building, how team size and kind of location impacts the ability to build and, and
0: evolve the culture of an organization. And, and at going the like, end of the day, what was, was yeah. it's, it's cool. Like, I'm curious, what was the platform or product doing?
1: Totally. So Osmosis was a, it's a medical education startup. The core product when I joined was these supplement or supplemental resources for medical students. Who were preparing mm-hmm. for their board exams? So, at the founding, um, the you know uh, the two founders of Osmosis, Schiff and Ryan. I realized that, you know, medical education was actually being done pretty poorly. Only about 25% of medical students were attending lecture. Most of them were learning on YouTube and and, and other platforms or learning from peers. And so they built a platform that facilitated the sharing and learning of, of medical education content. They also realized that, you know, one of the things that is going to be, would be a differentiator, it was to create incredibly high quality content. And Mm -hmm. they eventually brought on uh, the former head of the medical team at Khan Academy, uh, Dr. Rishi Desai, who became the chief medical officer. And they started producing this very, very high quality medical medical education content on YouTube that became their Mm -hmm. top of funnel. When I joined, as we started kind of raising more capital and kind of like looking at, you know, what the next phase of growth was for us, we realized that the big opportunity was in the B2B space. So, you know, kind of taking this these videos, this kind of content that we'd created, you know, flashcards, questions, kind of learning workspaces, all that, and repackaging it and selling it directly to medical schools as an alternative medical education curriculum. And mm-hmm. so my job ended up kind of shifting more into that space as chief operating officer. I was focused on validating that market, leading early sales, and then eventually starting to build out the sales team. When I was there, uh, we ended up capturing about twenty two percent of the US med school market in about eighteen wow. months, which is wild. Um, yeah. Wild. Yeah. It's it's an incredibly conservative market. And, you know, if you look at a Venn diagram of two spaces that are really difficult to sell into, education and healthcare are, you know, kind of right right in the middle there. And uh yeah, we I, I think for us, you know, there are a couple there are a lot of lessons around kind of like, you know, Sales and sales tactics and business development and relationship building. So that is something I think is, was an incredibly valuable lesson for me. Very painful. Um, right. but also, uh, you know, something that I've been able to help a lot of founders with. I left Osmosis in August of 2020 and ended up joining On Deck, as you mentioned, and launching the On Deck Health program. What's really funny about that program is that, you know, it was actually, I think, pretty notorious within On Deck for how slow of a start it had um, <laughs> as we were bringing it to market. And you know, we ended up getting 170 folks in the first cohort. We sourced most of them off of LinkedIn and Twitter. And then cohort two ended up being 80% referrals from cohort one. And that community, plus the investing work, obviously, um, that I did as part of the ODX Accelerator, you know, really gave me an insight into both what I wanted to do next in my career... And, you know, the ways in which I could be most valuable to founders. And, and, and fortunately for, for me and what I wanted to do, those things actually lined up pretty well. You know, today I'm doing health tech investing. I am looking at the pre-seed stage and I'm really focused and interested in this idea of, of community driven investing and making sure that we're giving founders this network of support to help them build. Because as I said earlier, being a founder, it's exceptionally lonely. That's really difficult. You have these very weird feedback loops and having folks around you who can kind of help get you to that next stage is really the difference maker for a lot of folks, especially in a complex space like healthcare.
0: What, in your perspective, as you've spent the last three, four years, like, you know, analyzing and studying a lot of the pre-seed stage startups, what are some common themes that you have seen across the space in general, in terms of founders and their bottlenecks, right? What are some of the challenges typically precede, especially precede founders have in health tech?
1: Yeah, and I would say that, you know, health tech is a challenging space, right? I think it's it's uniquely challenging in some ways, but there are a lot of sectors that have similar challenges, right? They In healthcare, you have kind of three main spaces where I think founders early on get stuck, right? So number one, institutional knowledge and Mm. access to the people that have that knowledge is really tied up in a few key relationships. There are a lot of kingmakers in health tech, kind of people who are going to make that introduction that gets your foot in the door, that gets your first sale. And it's really hard to know who those people are and where to find them. It's not something that you can like necessarily Google. So I would say that's number one. Mm. It's just... Getting access to the institutional knowledge you need to understand what you should be building and how you should be approaching approaching the market. I would say number two, uh, there's regulatory complexity in healthcare, Mm -hmm. right? So you know you have to understand where what you're wanting to build fits into kind of like the myriad of of rules and regulations around companies in healthcare, and um, this goes back a little bit to the access piece, but I think it's more specific. There are things that you can do early on as a founder of a health tech company that could can literally torpedo your company from day one. Wow. And mm. I think it's really hard to know what those things are and, and kind of know mm. how to find them as you're just drinking through the fire hose of information that every founder goes through for every startup around figuring out how to bring a company to market. And then I'd say the third thing is there's a lot of complexity around purchasing decisions in healthcare. Yeah. So you know, and this is a little bit more unique to healthcare, but you see it a little bit in EdTech as well. Your end user in healthcare is almost always not the person who's buying your product. Right. And what that means is that you have to deal with somebody who's using your product somebody who is paying for your product, and then maybe somebody who is getting billed at the end of the day for that product. And so, you know, there's sometimes two people involved. There's sometimes three people involved. I've seen companies that there's four entities that are kind of involved in in the healthcare decision making. And that's really challenging for founders to understand, especially folks coming from more traditional tech and B2B SaaS, where you're Mm -hmm. really just dealing with one buyer. And what all of those things mean in healthcare is that the best product doesn't win. It doesn't matter like you can build the most beautiful app, you can build something that solves very real problems for people in the space, but if number 1 you're not able to integrate yourself into somebody's workflow and make yourself indispensable or you're not able to actually sell it in to the people who are going to need to pay for it, you can't convince them that this is a problem that is worth spending money on, it's never going to be successful. And and I think Again, that's you know, you see a lot of you know incredibly talented people who are building for all of the right reasons, build something stunning and then just hit a wall because mm-hmm. they are not able to execute on the go-to-market because they don't have access to the information they need to go from zero to one. And so right. I think that's unique to healthcare. And I, I was having a conversation last week at at, at a conference with another investor. And one of the things that they commented on I thought was really insightful is, you know, for them, actually, a really elegant product is an immediate yellow flag. Because to them, that it then becomes a question of, do they have a healthcare person on the team? Mm-hmm. And have they taken a, a version of this to market already that they have validated that there is an opportunity here to build, right? I think, mm-hmm. you know, lots of people, we experience healthcare, we see it from the perspective of a patient but that is only kind of the surface of the healthcare industry. And there's all of these other layers of complexity underneath that you need people to guide you through in order to build successfully.
0: It's, it's funny, it's funny you say that because it's almost counterintuitive, right? If you have a completely frictionless, elegant, you know, like perfect UX, <laughs> you would think that would like be an amazing green flag in any other sector. But totally. no, I, can see, I can see how that, that could mean that the, the, the founding team have been building in silo, you know, have been polishing... You know a prototype without ever taking it to an md or you know another you know buyer somewhere right so no that makes sense but it's just it's just funny and definitely the opposite of, of how many other sectors operate you mentioned distribution owen right and and it, you know that is very close to my heart i think some of the principles around distribution go to market you know broadly apply to other sectors as well like building in public you know constantly iterating and not just being attached to the scope that you have in your mind and like listening to what people really want and co-creating with the community and all that. In your experience, if you have to give like, you know, I don't know, a bullet point list of advice around distribution, especially, and from the lens of community driven, what would that be, you know? And how would you advise founders to go about it?
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of it in healthcare actually depends on the product that you're going to build, right? So, and this is true, kind of what I'm thinking about, kind of in evaluating startups. This is something that I covered recently in a piece on getting to conviction in health tech that'll talk about it much more eloquently than I will right now. But, you know, I would say, you know, fundamentally, fundamentally, you know, especially for the founders at, at the early stages of building, you need to have some sort of unique competitive advantage, a right to win around getting access to early customers. I think it is absolutely critical in healthcare and it's especially important because of how much money has flowed into health tech over the past couple of years, right? Kind of post-COVID, mm. there's been a lot of focus, a lot of investment in the space. And it means that things that might've worked previously, especially around kind of direct-to-consumer marketing, using Facebook, Google ad, you know, ads, and, and and all that, they're really expensive now. You know, it's it's right. actually very expensive, uh, much more expensive to acquire customers than it was a couple of years ago. And so for, for founders, it's about really understanding what is number one, what is the company that they're going to be best able to build and be really honest with themselves about that? and making sure that they have a founding team that does have a competitive advantage around their core market. So I'll give two examples. Let's say you're building a, a company that is a direct-to-consumer healthcare company. You are looking at care delivery, right? So you're, you're treating kind of a certain type of patient. If I'm looking at that company today and I am gauging a founder's right to win in that space, I'm going to be looking at their ability to access that very niche community whatever mm-hmm. it is that they're going after. And so, you know, it could be a direct-to-consumer startup that is looking at the obesity space and looking at care coordination in the obesity space. I need to know that they have either relationships with the clinics that will be able to refer them patients um, right. or that they are connected and plugged into that community to be able to Start building momentum and building evidence around the product that they're building, and start getting patients in the door. So mm. that is that is incredibly important. If you're building a let's say a company that is in you know the software space or you know hospital operation space, and you're selling into hospital administrators or surgery centers or you know wh- whatever it might be, I need to know that number one you can speak the, the language, right? That mm. you know how the space works. You know how those those folks operate, most likely because you've either worked in that space or have someone on your team, an advisor, or, or founding teammate who, who has worked in that space. And I need to know that you have an ability to find the person who is going to be making the decision for you and be able to convert them. So right. when I was at Osmosis, we were selling into medical schools. And we were selling to uh, either associate deans for education or associate deans for student affairs or student services. And one of the things we learned very quickly is that the sell to either one of them is going to look totally different the things that they Mm -hmm. care about are totally different. The things Mm -hmm. that they are measured on in their career and and as part of their own path to success and in their careers is very different. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a different sales approach that is nuanced enough to understand that there might be different types of decision makers within an organization and be able to communicate to them the value that your product has in not just helping their patients, but also making their lives easier.
0: Mm. As you were explaining this, I, I just had this fun question that like, if it was not health tech, which other sector would you be? If you had to be solo, like siloed into one sector, what would that be if not for health tech in terms of investing? The reason I ask is I'm curious to know which other area you think is most impactful for the world, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, My kind of like mandate that I've set for myself from an investing perspective is helping people live healthier and more productive lives. I'm thinking a lot about, you know, tech has been additive to all of our lives, right? Like we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if not for Twitter and social media and, and everything. But I think in some ways as well it's taken a lot away from us too Mm -hmm. right um i think generally you know we see lots of instances of, of mental health being worse we see lots of instances of physical health being worse you know obesity is on the rise so i want to in my career focus on sectors that are doing kind of just that they are they are enabling people to live healthier and more productive lives i think that includes climate and actually, I think climate coincidentally has a lot of the same challenges that healthcare and health tech does. Mm. Um, in terms of you know lots of government regulation, you know a lot of opacity around decision making and purchasing in the space, um, right. and then oftentimes really interesting incentives where your end user, you know, kind of consumers. Are not the people actually at the end of the day footing the bill for the product because of you know grants and government spending and, and all of that? So right. I, th- I think climate is a really interesting space, and then I think you know ed ed tech and future work, right? Um, yeah. if, if you want to blend those too, right? Like
0: I was uh, going to say ed tech, ed tech <laughs> has to be in there.
1: It has to, right? Like I, and, you know, education is always going to be you know a big part of my life. It, it's it's a space that I'm deeply deeply passionate about. What I would say though is one of my big lessons from when I was teaching is that a lot of the things that we attribute to being uh, failings of the education system are actually systemic issues of poverty, right? You know, it, you know, students not getting enough food at home, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and having to kind of rely on schools to provide to provide them with meals. Students not getting adequate mental uh, uh, medical care, right? Whether that's kind of mental health, dental care, you know, visiting a PCP. And, you know, I can tell you that, like, you know, if, if a student comes into class with a toothache, they're not going to learn anything. Yeah. Right. And when you think about kind of all the times when when you know kind of we've gone to school and we've been feeling sick and like you know it we've generally I think had access in, especially kind of you know kind of peers that have grown up in the U.S. have, have access to kind of healthcare and, and we don't even really think about it. And so yeah. one of the things for me is you know thinking about the ways in which all of these different things are are interconnected. And mm-hmm. the other big lesson from when I was teaching. KP, and, and this is one I think that you'll really appreciate is that, you know, you can work harder than everyone else, right? You can push yourself and, and, and kind of, you know, get to that next level and you can kind of go to college, you can move to the place you want to move to. But at the end of the day, the thing that matters is your community and your network. Right? Yeah. That's how, you know, and, and so for me, I, I've had students actually from when I was teaching, this kind of shows how old I am, have gone on and gone to college. Right. Mm. And the thing is that, you know, they are getting to college, but they're the only one in their family who has gone to college. Mm. They don't have a network. They don't have peers. They don't have role models. Right. And it's an incredibly challenging and lonely experience for them. And they are at a huge disadvantage when it's time to go get that first job or that first internship, that person who's going to take a chance on them. And I think, you know, when we think about kind of ed tech, future of work, all of that, I think community is a huge, huge part of that, because that's the thing that enables people to level up and, 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 you know, take that next step in their careers.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. I think, you know, hit a nerve there because I was one of those people, you know, we didn't have... The community who didn't have a network. When I first moved to the US, I was twenty one and I was at Vanderbilt University, but I didn't feel like when I graduated, I had like two friends and I'm a very social person, right? It's yeah, just yeah, so yeah. I didn't have the cultural context of how to build relationships, you know, in the US because yeah. as an Indian immigrant, I was like kind of lost. And so when I graduated yeah. and all of the support system that I had in my classroom disappeared because everybody went off to do their things in their, you know, different cities and different jobs. I yeah. suddenly felt so isolated and yeah. lost about what is my next step here? You know, well, and and there's I nobody to one, call. There's no mm-hmm. people to rely on. No events like who's, to go who, to. How are you going to get advice about that?
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think, and I think part of it too is like, and this is the thing that I think so many of us take for granted. Like we just kind of learn the right social cues Right. We learn the right way to talk to people, the right way to ask for help, the right way to like approach new problems and situations. And, you know, I I think this is probably true for you and it's definitely true for my students is you have nobody to teach them that. Right. So, like, you end up like either not asking for help when you should or you end up like coming on way too strong. And yes. somebody off. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like I think it's it's really hard
0: to learn that without somebody yeah, actually and like showing it. You unless that. you're immersed. Unless you're immersed in it, right? I mean and totally. I this now, like a lot of I mean, this is so important for founders who are listening to. Please, I hope you get the gist of what we're trying to say is that surround yourself with the kind of people that you aspire to be somehow. Get in those rooms, get in those Zooms, get in those, you know, events somehow. And just find out and ex- figure out an excuse to hang out with them more and more because you're gonna learn a ton through osmosis, much more than you know watching a YouTube video or reading a Substack post, right? Because when I worked at on deck, and both of us felt this, where we saw you know troves like I don't know like thousands of founder applications come in, thousands of video uh, pitches come in, and hundreds of fellows and founders and investors. It was such a thriving, vibrant ecosystem that I picked up so many cues on. So many aspects of being in tech, just because I existed in that ecosystem. So I'm grateful totally. for that, and I'm blown away that that is a thing that was inaccessible to me many years ago. Now, talent-wise, I was the same. I don't think my IQ has grown since you know joining on deck or since I got into tech. It's the same person, same talents, you know, same ambition. All of these were same, except I think the access to your point. Like now, I have. You know, both of us have insane networks and access. The other thing is, of course, support system. Who do you call when you need advice? And do you have the right person in your contact book, right? You can't totally. just be one person for all of your questions. You want a growth person. You want a community person. You want a, you know, hiring decision person. So you need to have a diverse mix of experiences in your network, you know, so so key. Yeah,
1: well, and, and what I would add on to that, too, is, you know, part of the value of of having building your network, expanding it as, as, as broad as you can, building real meaningful relationships with people is that you then aren't going back to the same people over and over again for help. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think some founders miss is, and this is something I, I, I missed re- as I was kind of early on in this journey is that, you know, every time somebody helps you, they are making an active decision not to do something else. Or not to help mm. someone else. Every introduction they make for you is a one less thing that they can ask that connection
0: for. Right. right. Social capital. And so, right? they're like, yeah, le- yeah. They're expending they're their social They're yeah. they're
1: they're expending their social capital, and I think that is something that we like don't really value properly. That's but, like, so true. When I'm like when I'm kind That's of having so conversations true. with folks. You know, like either you know, this, is, this is something I saw a little bit on deck and I, and I see this on Twitter it, or I see it on LinkedIn and someone will reach out and say, hey, like I see you're connected to this well-known investor. Can you make an introduction? Right. And this is somebody I've never met before. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, this is, this is somebody reaching out who I've, I've never met before. And, and my answer is always going to be no. Right. Because like the more impressive, the more well-known that person is, the fewer times they're going to open my email. Yeah. Right, I get like five emails. To them, right, I get like five asks. Like maybe. Right, and so like, and so you know, for me, a big part of it is like, you know, if I'm making intros, I'm going to make intros like with people that I have spent time building a relationship with first. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to prioritize that, and you know, now that things are kind of opening up again and, and all that, I would say that like the relationships that that kind of you know that started on the internet that that have grown or finding ways to meet up with internet friends in person is so important and so valuable. Yeah. That is how you turn an internet friend into a real life friend. Right. And when I joined on deck, I had actually just moved to New York and it was in the middle of COVID. It was, you know, I moved to New York in, in late 2020, started it on deck in early 2021. And like my only friends for that first year were internet friends, right? Mm. Everything was closed. There was nobody that you right. could meet. It was, you know, it was, and, and at first it was fine. And then it wasn't, right? Suddenly right. it was like, man, this is actually a really lonely existence. And, right. you know, even just like starting to kind of put in that extra effort to meet up with people in person to start right. building those relationships. Um, I mean, that is, that is like, you know, totally transformed my life here. And it has been... The biggest unlock for me besides going mm. to therapy in my career right. and and so like I, I almost kind of like when I look back on my on my time living here in the past two years kind of first at, at on deck and and now as an investor, it's almost like looking at it in black and white and then all of a sudden it's like stepping into Oz and like everything going into Technicolor, right, right. because I have this community. I have these people. I can invite friends over for dinner, right. I can go out for drinks. I can and if I'm having a really, really hard day, I know that there's at least one person that I can call that will go get a cup of coffee with me. Right. And that is what makes all of this sustainable. And that's what makes all of this worth it. Because if you're doing it alone, if you're doing it by yourself, it is an incredibly lonely journey. And you're not going to have people to help you when things go badly.
0: And I think even worse, you're not going to have people to celebrate with when things go. Yeah. Right. The small wins. Right. So Fun fact, Owen and I, every time we jump on a call, the first thing we ask each other, is, say, hey, what's a small win in the last, What's a, what's been a small win the last week or so? And it's, I feel like that's a better opening than saying, how are you in a way? Because how are you just can come up, like you can send some dry answer to it. But for a small win, you really have to pause and reflect on something that was a celebration, you know, or some positive thing. So I got one last question, Owen, which is, we talked about investing in healthcare. We talked about sort of your track record. I'm curious about specifically some tangible examples of companies, startups that you invested in. What made them tick for you? Mm-hmm. And how should, like, let's say, if there are any founders here who may want you as an angel investor, what are some things you look for, you know, when you when you invest? Yeah, so, you know, through my
1: time uh, at OnDeck, I got to develop a, a, I think, pretty exciting thesis around uh, the healthcare space and and the types of founders that that do especially well in kind of the current market conditions. And that was both from companies that I invested in and companies that I supported through the Honda community. So, you know, I'm big fans of, of the team at Curio. that are They're working in the psychedelic assisted therapy space. Hillary and Felix and Mateo are, are, are a fantastic team. And then I'm a big fan of companies like Icona. Uh, Tim Fitzpatrick is the founder of Icona. And this is somebody who has been, you know, Really putting in the work, he's been building the company for five years, and you know has been able to now raise you know successful funding rounds to then to now take this company to the next level. And Icona is great because they're they're working in uh, in the patient education space around bringing dialysis into the home, which is something mm-hmm. that is dramatically going to improve the lives of patients who are having to get that treatment. And I think you know with with those sorts of companies, with companies like EVI and Well Theory and Pair Team, you know. The thing that all of these founders are having in, have in common around kind of how they're thinking about the space is, is that they are building something out of lived experience, right? Mm. They've seen something in the healthcare system, either through themselves, through a family member, through a patient, through a loved one. And they realize that, hey, there's something fundamentally broken here. And I have the nerd, the earned knowledge to go after that problem. Mm. either through kind of myself or and or the founding team of folks that I, I'm able to assemble. These people are all fantastic storytellers. They are able, as you said, to wiggle their way into rooms that they, you know, mm that they don't have any right to be in, right? They, they have advisors and investors who, you know, are, uh, you know, exceptional. They have, you know, access to B2B contracts and customers that are it just for the stage of company is, is, is truly shocking. And that fully comes down to their ability to tell an incredibly compelling story. And get folks on their side, turn people who are potential customers into advocates. And then the third piece, and, and I think this is one that, that people overlook, and this is something that I think a lot of founders have to think about, is you know at the early stages of building, and especially building in health tech, there are these kind of long troughs where you're not going to be able to raise capital but you are having to prove something out right you're having Mm. to collect clinical data you're having to get x number of contracts and so i think you know for founders and for ceos the ability to keep their company capitalized and have Mm. the network to and build the network of of investors who are going to be able to support them as as they're kind of building from zero to one um, that is so necessary to building a company in this space so Just like, again, high level building out of lived experience with kind of an an earned knowledge and earned advantage, the ability to get into the right rooms and, and bring the right folks on board and again, kind of cultivate the right advocates and then the ability to keep your company capitalized as you are building out your clinical proof or your go-to-market proof, I think those are the three most important things that precede. And I think everything else is just a matter of the type of
0: company that you're wanting to build. Right. Awesome. I mean, I, I think we're almost at the end of the, you know, top of the hour. So I want to be conscious of your time. This is fun, man. I think we we could do a monthly series. I feel like I just scraped the surface of how much I want to know about healthcare from your lens, knowing that I know you're deep into this. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate you sharing your knowledge your candid reflections on your career what you see you know for founders so thank you so much and hope to see you again Thanks, KP. This was a blast. Always great to chat
1: with you. And this is fun. I mean, this is like turning our normal monthly phone call into a podcast. Right. This is great. I think that's, so, uh,
0: that's, what, that's what I said, right? Like we could we could just do our monthly thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, what, to, you, to, 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 be, to
1: be clear, I, I don't I don't normally talk this much. This is uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little it's a little uneven no, in our in our in our conversations.
0: That is true. I usually I'm the one who's like like ninety percent of the airwaves. But I, I got very curious. I think the one thing that was exciting for me. You know about this sort of session was i got to ask you and i get to ask in public and ask on air the kind of things that normally i would you know uh, not care for or ask for because we talk about life things and like other things right so this was really enlightening for me too like how you view the field how you view the industry and so on so thanks again and uh, thanks you know, wish you all the best